Let me ask you something. Do you like a bit of mystery, intrigue, and mayhem with your morning coffee? Yeah, me too. That's how I came to discover Coffee and Cases, a true crime podcast, which is hosted by our friends, the talented Allison Williams and Maggie Damron, who take deep dives into the unknown and the unsolved. They bring it every episode. So when you're sipping that morning, Joe, invite these two gals so they can give you all that you need to know. And then don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe because, well, it's the right thing to do. Greetings from the Bluegrass State. That's Kentucky, if y'all didn't know. We want to tell you about the hottest new podcast on the block, Coffee and Cases. If you fancy yourself an at-home detective. If you find yourself yelling at the TV during that new true crime documentary. Then you, my friend, are a certified sleuth hound. Just like us. On Coffee and Cases podcast, you'll hear about the missing, the murdered, and the unsolved. But the cases you've rarely, if ever, heard about. All from the perspective of two teacher friends, rule followers, and self-proclaimed scaredy cats. Join me, Allison. And me, Maggie. Each week, as we take on cases that are often overlooked, but are screaming for justice. Finally, a true crime podcast where you don't have to monitor the foul language. Coffee and Cases is a true crime guilty pleasure that you don't actually have to feel guilty about. Check out Coffee and Cases every Thursday for a new episode on your favorite podcasting app. We want to start off by thanking all of you, our faithful listeners, for your amazing continued support. You know, occasionally I get on bended knee with hat in hand and ask you to do more. Well, this is one of those times. Growing a podcast truly takes a village. Some platforms allow for reviews, specifically Apple Podcasts, and those reviews are so important in that they let potential listeners know from our current listeners what's up. We all look at Rotten Tomatoes before we watch a movie. Podcasts are no different. The ratings and reviews matter. So to ensure that you don't have to listen to my begging and pleading at the beginning of future episodes, do Darren and I a favor. First off, subscribe. Always subscribe. Apple's algorithm literally factors in new subscribers on a daily basis in determining which podcast will land in the top 200. We need you to subscribe, no matter what platform. And please rate and review on whatever platform you're listening on, if it's available to do so. It's the holiday season, and it's the time for giving. So if you give us the wonderful gift of exposure, we would be eternally grateful. If you want to go the extra mile and also get ad-free episodes, join our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash Defense Diaries. We have so many great ideas that we will be implementing in the near future for our patrons. Now is a great time to join, and it helps the show more than you know. Finally, as far as social media goes, we're establishing a community here, and we want all of you to be a part of it. So make sure that you follow us on Facebook or Meta, or whatever they're calling it these days, and Instagram at Defense Diaries, and also on Twitter, which we're really trying to build up, so please follow us there as well, and that's at Defense underscore Diaries. We promise that we will not flood your feed with hundreds of posts, but growing the socials is another crucial aspect to growing the pod. Enough of that. Let's get back to it. Did you ever want to tell anybody about these bodies under the house? You don't want to talk to your mother, sister... No. Priest, I told you that I had, are you a religious person? I mean, were you uh, 
Do no, I believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. Were you active when I was younger, yes. participating? No, within the last few years. No. Not active in religion at all. Never. I believed in God. I, I would consider myself an emotional type person, religious-wise. You know, it's a moving thing. You I felt that I was doing my own thing with mankind by helping others. By doing a lot of civic-type work and, and working with other people. I, I don't know. Basically, I felt sorry for people. I was an easygoing person. Anybody, you know, after you were around me for a while, you'd know I was gullible enough to get around. I'm easy to get around. Because you never, I can, I can get mad by, at uh, I can get by mad. calling, right? Catholic. Yeah, I'm Catholic. You never went to confession or anything like that during the past few years, I mean. Mm, no, not, not confession. No, nor communion. Do you, did you ever feel any moral moral repercussions as a result of having these bodies on your house? Was there any? Why would I? The, the no. people that were killed were, were homosexuals. You they were, hated homosexuals. They were bad people to begin you with. Hated them. I don't hate nobody. Did you hate I dislike them. No, I don't hate anybody. I dislike them. Yes. Uh, I don't. I don't care if anybody engages. I'm a liberal thinker. I don't care what anybody engages in, and I don't sit in judgment on anybody. Okay? If anybody does anything under a consenting view, I, I see nothing wrong with it. I think a person that molests a small child, they, they, they should uh, castrate him. That's my feeling on, on sexual abuse of children or something like that. But in, insofar as getting into kinky things and stuff like that, I didn't like anything that had pain involved. I didn't like anything that was that you can remember. I'm talking about me. You. Just just my own thinking. I don't believe in violence. I, I never believe in violence. I don't think you solve an argument by violence. But insofar as my, my sexual calling, I, I've always felt that there was nothing wrong with anything you engaged in as long as it was by a willing participant and there was no force involved. Sexually, I could not, I could not get into any sexual conduct by force. Rocky can tell you that because I used to get aggravated. If he was teasing me with it, I used to tell him, fucking eat it yourself. Or just get the hell away from me and leave me alone. But then he'd always bend over, because if he wanted something from me, then, then he'd change his mind. But any time that he tried to docile it in front of me or, or try to agitate me with it, he got nowhere with it. I, I disliked homosexuals, but whatever they did was their own business. I didn't care about that. I didn't, I didn't like homosexuals coming in contact with me at all. The person that was bisexual and got into it with the understanding that they were just getting into sex, that was another story. Anybody that would want to kiss you or, or, or hug you or anything like that, I thought was kind of crazy because I don't understand what the hell they would get out of, you know, wanting to make love to a male. Is there anything in your mind that you, I've asked you this before, I've got to ask again, what these people dead as opposed to those alive? I mean, is there anything in your mind? What? Well, if you're alive, it only means that you, you engaged in the sex, you knowingly engaged in sex, and some of them did it for nothing, and some of them did it for, for small amounts of money. Or, or well, which ones are the ones you killed? I mean, the ones that were killed was either through a fight or, or through blackmail or something like that. Not out of fear. But do you remember? No. I mean, why the hell is one dead and you don't remember the specific... Well, if that, was the, if that was the case, then why didn't I kill more of them? Because certainly there's no logic in the fact that... Well, I want to tell you something, There was John. no more very... I think he had help. But there, mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. 
you know, see, so just like I, I think it, I, maybe you and Sam would both like me to, to finger Rossi and, and I don't want you to finger but anybody. But the, the thing of it is, is that, and I'm also telling you that what they may have on Rossi and Cram may be a general homosexual attitude towards me. What I'm worried about, John, is that they're going to use Cram and Rossi against us. That's what I'm worried about. And I'm what worried they, about that they're going to give immunity to Cram and Rossi, immunity to Cram and Rossi, for them to spill their guts about you and them planning all of this stuff or some of it together to show that you're not insane. That's what I'm worried about, John. And that's why Cram and Rossi have Because it shows some kind of a conspiracy. They show planning between you and two other people. And I want, I've got to find out what those guys know. Then I don't, I don't. No, no. Why would they, why would they give uh, immunity to prosecution for that? To get you. You always said they got me. Oh. So you're trying to say that they're, they're in fact a witness. The dark, loud, smoke-filled tavern located on North Elston in the city was filled with men who worked with their hands for a living. Bottles of old style and shots of whiskey sat on the bar, at the ready, waiting to be consumed by the men, mostly of Polish descent, who frequented the bar day after grueling day. The Good Luck Lounge was your typical Chicago dive bar, replete with a coin-operated, beer-stained, green-felt pool table which sat near the front door of the bar. There were also a couple of pinball machines that were always occupied by men who were hip-checking them and cursing out loud as yet another ball was magnetically drawn down the drain. The creep had started hanging around this bar in early of 78 and had quickly endeared himself with the regulars that frequented the bar on a nearly daily basis with his quick wit and knack for storytelling. No sooner than Gacy had established himself as a regular at the Good Luck, the bar was sold to new owners and the whole vibe of the place changed and it was a vibe that didn't suit him. As such, he became less and less of a fixture at the establishment. Many of the other regulars stayed the course, as this was their spot. And one of those men was Robert Sipusic. His buddies called him Snags. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2012. This is the story of his terrifying encounter with the creep. Snags had met Gacy when he was frequenting the bar, and they had become friendly over time. As summer was ending and fall was beginning, Snags was telling tales out of school with a heavyset contractor, and the big guy suggested that they get out of there and head over to his place, because after all, there, the drinks were free. And on top of that, he could supply him with some speed and some other goodies. Snags liked free. I mean, who doesn't? And a bit of speed didn't sound too bad either. So off they went in Gacy's Black Olds over to 8213 Somerdale. Snags, when he got there, he was impressed with the creep's house. Even though the dude was at least 10 years older than him, the guy clearly knew how to party. He had a bumper pool table set up in the front room and a cool-looking tiki bar in the living room. So Snags plopped down into a recliner. Gacy walked over to the bar and made a whiskey and seven for his young guest. He pulled out the wooden box, which he kept hidden under the bar, and pulled out a pre-rolled joint. Gacy then meandered over to where Snags was seated, handed him the drink, and now the lit joint. This guy's all right, Snags thought to himself. He had heard Gacy talking about the huge stash of various pills that he had back at the bar on several different occasions. They always just thought the guy was kind of talking shit. 
So when Gacy started producing bottles of Preludin, Darvon, and Valium, and began describing the effects of each, the kid decided that this dude was no bullshitter. His new buddy then began telling him that he was a cop of sorts, which made sense. His car had a spotlight and a CB radio in it. Shit was starting to add up. Gacy then brought up amyl nitrate, commonly referred to as poppers. He told him that you sniff the fumes and you get a real nice high, instantly. He asked Snags if he'd like to give it a whirl. Snags thought about it briefly. Then he agreed. It sounded like a good time. The creep went back behind the bar, fiddled down below the bar top for a moment, and came up with a washcloth. Come here, kid. Just uh, take this and put it up to your nose and take a real deep breath in. Snags did, as instructed. Yet, instead of feeling exhilarated, he felt as if someone had just hit him in the head with a mallet. He vomited within seconds. Fucking rookie, he heard Gacy say. Gacy picked up the rag which Snags had dropped and pressed it over his mouth and nose again. It was all going dark. Robert's eyes fluttered open, and it felt as if he was laying down. He soon realized that he was in fact in the bed, and his new friend was fully nude, laying on top of him. Robert did everything that he could to muster up the power to push the big man off of him, but to no avail. He simply wasn't there yet, mentally. Gacy, however, suddenly lifted himself off of Robert and left the room. Fading in and out of consciousness, he sees the bastard approaching him again with cloth in hand. Then, fade to black. The concept of time has now completely escaped Snags. As he regains his consciousness, he sees through the bedroom window that the sun is now rising. As clarity slowly begins to reform in his mind, he realizes that he's been at this guy's house all night. He sees the creep standing over him, staring down at him intently. What the fuck, man? What did you do to me? He pushed Gacy back and scooped up his jeans off the floor and frantically began pulling them on. Relax, kid. I got this little issue with bisexuality. I'm working on making it right. But you're fine. Get dressed. I'll bring you back to the bar. Robert's mind was racing as he fought to recall any of the night's events. Simply couldn't. By the way, kid, I wouldn't bother going to the cops. They ain't gonna do shit when I tell them that you were into it. Seriously. Just be happy that you're alive. During the search of Gacy's home on December 21st, the cops found two nude pictures of Robert Sipiusic among the hundred or so other photos they recovered. It's tough to say that he was lucky considering what he went through. But the fact is, at that point in time, he had no idea just exactly how close he was to having his flame extinguished. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 26. 
If ever there were someone. He left off on January 10th, 1979, as the first substantive court date for Gacy was taking place at 26 in California. A flurry of motions had been filed by the creeps' attorneys, hoping to achieve various results. Now, the way that motions work is that they are filed either by the state or the defense, and they are not immediately heard at the time of filing. That is simply not how it works. Unless a motion is filed on an emergency basis, whoever didn't file the motion is going to be given time to review the motions and respond in writing. It is the combination of the tendering of discovery by both the state and the defense, the filing of arguments of motions, and the continuing investigation by both sides that results in the delays in a matter getting to trial after a defendant is arrested. At this point, Gacy has been in custody for less than a month, and the legal process is just beginning the slow grind towards trial. For the victim's families and the public at large, this wait is excruciating and inexplicable and seems to last forever. As to the untrained eye or those unfamiliar with the legal process, every court date just seems to end with another continuance. For the state and the defense, the time between arrest and trial passes in the blink of an eye. It's that strange phenomenon that seems to only occur with the passage of time, such as when you're anticipating something that you're either looking forward to or you really want to happen, and the days could not possibly pass any more slowly, as opposed to a situation where you're on the clock and the pressure is on. There just don't seem to be enough hours in the day. This time seems to be accelerated. An excellent analogy is your wedding day. Think of all the planning and work that goes into that one special day. And for those of you out there that are married, think back to how fast that day went by. It seemed to be over before it started. I mean, there's a reason people have photographers documenting the whole damn thing. Sure, for the memories. But really, it's so the bride and groom can see what in the hell actually went on. Because the whole thing was just a whirlwind. Well, lawyers involved in this case, or any case really, are dealing with that whirlwind effect. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, what in the hell is there to do in the creeps case? I mean, after all, they found all the bodies in his damn crawl space. It's an open and shut case, right? Well, not exactly, and I'm glad you asked. It's an open and shut case, right? Well, not exactly, and I'm glad you asked. Because it's your favorite time, and it's my favorite time. It's Trial Advocacy 101 time. So when any case lands on a prosecutor's desk, they typically have some idea of what's going on with the case. Because as I've previously informed you, that, in fact, it was some prosecutor that had approved whatever crimes the defendant is being charged with, not the cops. So in the time between the arrest and the first or second court date, which is typically 30 to 60 days, the prosecutor is calling over to the arresting agency and saying, hey, I need the police reports. Immediately, the cops, in turn, start working on getting their reports typed out and getting whatever evidence they collected together so that they are tendering a cohesive, triable case over to the state. Once the state receives the reports, they will pour through the documents to determine what their theory of the case will be. They do this by examining the evidence that has been collected by the police, such as physical and forensic evidence and witness statements. The state's attorney will then begin determining what the strengths and weaknesses of the case are, right from the jump. If they find gaping holes in the case, they will instruct the cops on what else they need to do 
to secure a conviction. If they have a case where a defendant has made a statement, one of two things has happened. Either the accused has confessed, or they've denied committing the crime. If they've denied committing the crime, typically they have provided some type of alibi as to why it couldn't have been them who committed it, or just a straight-up denial. In the alibi situation, the state immediately instructs the cops to begin to dismantle the alibi if they hadn't been able to do so prior to the arrest. Now, keep in mind, in Illinois, an alibi defense must be disclosed to the state prior to trial, which was not always the case, but it is now and it was then. And the primary reason for the enactment of this rule was so that defense attorneys couldn't withhold the fact that a client had an alleged alibi and then surprise the state with it at trial, leaving the state zero opportunity to disprove it. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, Bob, doesn't that mandatory disclosure trigger a Fifth Amendment right to remain silent issue? And if you thought this, you would not be wrong at all. But that is a discussion for another day. So the requirement to disclose the alibi is of particular importance for the state in situations where the defendant has not made a statement to law enforcement. Because without it, the state would have zero clue what was coming. Now that the state gets a heads up on the alibi defense, which must include the specifics of the alibi, the state has the opportunity to dig up evidence to prove that that alibi is bullshit. The state, right from the beginning, will start putting together their witness list as well, which comes directly from the police reports, at least initially. As you know, the state will continue to send out investigators to follow up with witnesses and try to uncover new ones, always building in the case. So as the cops are out continuing to hunt down witnesses, the state waits for the forensics to come back from the state lab. Whether it be ballistics, if a gun was involved, or DNA, if samples are found at the scene, or extracted data from phones, computers, or tablets, all of this takes time, many times months, before results of the examinations are returned to the state. In the meantime, what's the defense doing? At the beginning, not much, as we've discussed previously, until the defense gets their hands on the discovery to see exactly what evidence the state has against their client. On average, if it's a run-of-the-mill felony case, discovery will start coming in around the third court date, which is approximately 90 days. Remember, this is the express purpose for all of these continuances leading up to trial. The judge is overseeing the discovery process, making sure that it's moving along as it should. If it's a major felony, the first discovery disclosure can take longer, depending on the type of case that it is. If it's a reverse buy drug case where the cops are playing drug dealer and are purportedly selling dope to the defendant, the discovery will come in rather quickly because after all, the cops have all the evidence from the start as it was a sting operation. So they know all the details that they wouldn't otherwise know if the bust involved only private citizens. But if it's a murder where the investigation took place over months or years, it will take much longer as there is much more information to compile. There could be huge amounts of the police investigation that were dead ends, yet all of it must be vetted by the state and tendered to the defense for their investigation. So the defense will file whatever motions they can early on, but the real action starts when the discovery starts coming in. You see, as I already told you, early on, usually the only information that you have is coming directly from your client. This is real life. And in real life, your clients deny, 
deny, deny. A good defense attorney never asks their client if they did it. And a smart client never admits that they did it. We just asked them one question early on. And that question is, what are the cops saying that you did? And that's it. Nothing else. Your client may have people that you can send your private investigator out to interview. Some may be helpful. Many won't be. But once discovery starts flowing in, that's when the motion practice really gets rolling. You are scouring the police reports to get the details of the searches. Did they have probable cause to conduct the warrantless search? If there was a search warrant issued, did they have probable cause to get the warrant? The analysis of the purported probable cause, the cops say that they had at the time of the searches of either the person, the vehicle, or the home are absolutely critical in preparing the motions to quash the search, the arrest, and in motions to suppress evidence. Now, I've used the term probable cause here many times. And while I'm sure you've heard the term used hundreds of times during your true crime careers, I'm going to elaborate a bit. It's defined as the cops having a reasonable basis for believing that a crime may have been committed. This is for an arrest. Or they have a reasonable basis to believe that the evidence is present. This is for a search. If you're thinking, wow, there seems to be a lot of wiggle room there for the cops. Well, you'd be right. It is exactly this battle between the state and the defense attorneys on what actually constitutes probable cause that carves out how it's defined. And keep in mind, it's a fluid situation. It changes over time. Remember when I told you about legal precedent? It's these cases that give the court guidance when they're attempting to evaluate whether the Constitution was violated. But I digress. This is a rabbit hole that I will not go down right now because this would turn into an eight-hour episode. And that would probably bore the shit out of you. Maybe not. So... You've got the state continuing to build up its case, lining up its witnesses, and you've got the defense working on their motions to quash and suppress during the discovery and motion phase. Again, this phase can and usually does last years in a major felony case. In the meantime, if the facts warranted, the defense will be conducting their own investigation. If you have a client that is adamantly denying that they are guilty, then as defense counsel, you are obligated to go out and try to find an alternate suspect. It's a tough road to hoe, but it can occasionally bear fruit. So there you go, lesson over, 101 is done. We will revisit trial ad down the road as there is much more to go over. But for now, it's enough to get you to start seeing just exactly how much is going on all at one time, which causes that acceleration phenomenon. I don't feel remorseful and I don't feel upset with anything that's, that's transpired. These are things that upset me is when people try to label me a homosexual, which I'm not, or when people tell me that I'm lying to them. It, it infuriates me and makes me mad. I hate dumb, stupid things. You know, stupidity I can't stand. I, I cannot understand how anybody could be stupid. You know, because most things in life is common sense. And if you use common sense, you can get along in this world. I don't, I don't I've never been a quitter. I don't believe in quitting. And I, I think you can overcome any object that you set your mind to doing. Because I, I, I can remember in the building trade, I had never built a roller rink in my life. 
And yet, I told myself that I could do it, and I did it. I can set goals in life, and I can meet them. And just like I tell you right now, and I can say it with, with very much satisfaction, that if I get out of here, one, nobody will ever be able to find my identity, and most people will never even care for me again. I have already, you know, been researching what I intend to do. And I don't even, I, I even probably need somebody to, to, to get started, but not more than a couple thousand dollars, and I don't want that. I don't, I don't look for greed in, in regards to money from books, papers, or magazines. I would just assume that I would, would go into a trust and take care of my mother and my sister and make sure that you people are well compensated, both you and Sam. But I, I am no way, uh, money I can make myself. I always have a trade because I, I'm amber dexterous in what I know. I could go, go to laying bricks. I can lay floor tile. I can go back to cooking again. Uh, I, I could get into numerous things. The only thing that I find that I'm going to have to do is probably stay out of the public limelight, which will be hard. The only way that I'll be able to found is probably work with hospitals or, or work with church groups or don't get into political or law type things. That's, you know, that that's me. But it's insofar as being remorseful or, or feeling sorry for homosexuals and even though they were younger then, what they were doing was wrong to begin with. What was trying to transpire was wrong to begin with. So back to the case. Lead prosecutor Bill Kunkel has a massive amount of work ahead of him. And that 13 months that we've talked about before trial will absolutely fly by. Let's jump back to court on January 10th. The motions have been filed and the defense has been bitching about the search warrants for Gacy's house having been long expired. And they want the court to enter a cease and desist order. Kunkel is firing back, saying that four warrants have been filed and ordered And further, the warrants will expire when the state is 100% certain that there is not a 29th body located anywhere on that property. So what is Judge Fitzgerald going to do? Will he grant the defense's motion and halt the search at the creep's house? Or will he agree with the state and allow the search of the property to continue by denying the order? Well, he denies the defense's motion to cease and desist, knowing full well that the weather has caused the search to come to a grinding halt which in effect buys the court time to get the matter litigated. Remember, Judge Fitzgerald is the chief judge over at 26th and Cal at this time. He will not be the trial judge. And his preference is to leave these types of substantive motions or critical decisions that are contained within the 11 motions filed by the defense are to be made by the judge who will actually be presiding over the trial. So Fitzgerald's next move is to assign the case to a judge. And remember, this case is political. This case is huge. Maybe the biggest the country has ever seen at this juncture. So who's getting the call to preside over the case of the century? Find out on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Finally, as always, thank you for being dedicated listeners. And it really is so fulfilling for both Darren and I to hear from you guys. It truly validates what we are doing. Because without you, I'd just be some old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time. Okay, we know where the body's at. <laughs>
No, exactly what it applies to.